I'm hopping on an airplane this afternoon, and so we have Spanish church that meets after here, and I got to pack bags. Uh, so uh, you're going to listen fast today. I I I don't like when preachers kind of talk you out of listening to their word. You know, like this probably isn't going to be that great. Um, uh, I believe the word of God penetrates hearts and deep reaches out to deep, uh, and so. Uh, I know the Lord has a plan with this, but I want you to listen for, you know, to hear that for yourself. The frustrating part of this message is going to be that I'm probably not going to have a nice list of practical applications of do these four things and everything will go well for you. You're going to have to kind of discern in your heart, what do we do with this? The principal idea that we're going after in this, this message is growth. What does it mean for us to grow together and as individuals? What does it mean for us to grow? It's a the key, key idea is to establish a culture of growth. And so I'm going to read for you out of 1 Corinthians uh, 12 and 13. It's a, not a really long passage, but it's important to establish some context. So I'm really only going to focus on a few verses, really in, in chapter 3, verses like 6 to 9 or the core, really like 6 and 7 or 7 and 8. But I'm going to read all this to give you an idea of what's, what's going on here. I'll kind of give you some deeper context about Corinth once I read this. So this is Paul, starting in chapter 2, like verse 12. This is what Paul is saying to the church. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14. Now, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are only spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? That's from Isaiah 40. But we have the mind of Christ. So in that section, I'll get at this in a second, Paul is basically juxtaposing two different types of people, the natural man and the spiritual man. Then in in chapter 3, But I, brothers, could not address you, or y'all, church, as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, or if you have an older translation, as carnal, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, Not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Answer, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, they're united, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, even God's building. And so, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would give us discernment, that we would have ears to hear and that we would have a discerning heart to feel the application of the the objective truth of this word in our lives in a way that when we leave here today, uh, that we might be 
we might have already heard and received good seed planted in soil and that we might yearn and hunger to be good soil, that that seed would grow within us. Lord, I, if, that, if that's the, the, the desire of your heart to, to see that transaction happen, then I, I ask you in Jesus' name that you would start with my heart, that you would make me good soil, that the very words that I speak would go out of my mouth and back into my own ear uh, as, as coming from you. If it's just stuff that's come from me, Lord, that doesn't matter. It has no bearing on eternity. Let that stuff fall to the ground and be swept away like dust. In Jesus' name, amen. One other thing I want to say, at the very end of this service, when I say amen, go in peace, if you're ready to go, you can go. But if you can stay, I would love for you to stay and pray with Mallory Joswick. Mallory, this is her last Sunday here. She's heading back to Kansas City to the International House of Prayer to go back into school there and some other things. And she can use support financially and and prayerfully. And the prayer part we're going to do right here at the end. So when I say go, Mallory's going to come. And if you can stay and pray, if you want to speak to her, offer her words of encouragement, pray for her, we're going to do that right here. Okay? Amen? All right, so let's talk about this Corinthian church. I, I, I kind of jokingly put as my first, my header point for the first point, the first Corinthian church of Jacksonville. Um, because in a sense, the words that applied that were, that were significant in this letter, the, the situation that Paul was addressing in, in first century Corinth really look, I mean, you probably have heard this. If you've ever been in a church before and heard a message on, 1 Corinthians, and the pastor gave you any context at all, you probably have heard the fact that Corinth in the Bible and America or the West, you know, of the 20th and now 21st century, there's a lot of similarities. Um, It's very messy in Corinth. It's uh, a very eclectic, you know, place. It looks a lot like, like I said, maybe even Jacksonville. It's, It's Corinth is wealthy. It's in Greece. On the coast, it's, it's wealthy. It's a port city. It's got a big arena for athletic contests where people gather to, you know, to, to cheer on the team, so to speak, and watch games. It's highly hedonistic. If you don't know that word, you can Google it. Um, it you know, means basically a, a anything goes kind of mentality. There is no absolute truth. Although Rome allowed for and encouraged religious freedom. It didn't encourage anyone who said there's only one way. When we sing a song, I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Nope, not in Rome, not in the Roman Empire. It's, there's no absolute truth. That very much so looks like today's post-Christian culture. You might have heard this word. If you haven't within the church amongst young people, there's a growing trend called deconstruction or deconstructionism, deconstructing the faith, and I've become a post-Christian. I'm deconstructing these, these ancient affirmations that have, the church has held on to for 2,000 years to, to find what I really, who I am. And, and oftentimes that's landing in, you know, uh, what I would call ambiguous or, or, or slippery slope kind of truth. And that's very much the situation that was in Corinth, pleasure-seeking. You know, I'll decide what's right for, for me. You decide what's right for you. Pleasure-seeking at the highest value. They even branded the name, like in, like in some sort of tourist advertisement, to live like a Corinthian, which implied diving into all kind of ways of, like, drunken, promiscuous living in the temple gods and all that. that, that if you were doing that, then it was said of you, man, you're living like a Corinthian. And so um, here's what I want you to hear about that context. That context is not a threat, but an opportunity. 
It's exactly the type of place God loves to plant churches. And so a church has been planted, and Paul is now addressing some of the messiness that he sees within there, the, the Corinthian church, because it's full of all kinds of people who come from all kinds of places. And as I read to you out of chapter 2, Paul is basically highlighting, he's, look, you can look at the world, and you can say there are essentially two different types of people. There are what's called the natural man or natural people, and then there are spiritual people. The natural people are people who are still blinded, in a sense, to spiritual truths and to, and, you know, when we say things like Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and, you know, and, and, and you must be born again, to the natural man, that doesn't even make sense. It's foolishness. Paul says this, that, that to those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. Of course it is. The fact that a man would go and die to redeem other people is foolishness to those who are them, themselves perishing. And so he says to the natural man, this makes no sense. Spiritual truths, deep insights make no sense to those who are, who are still in this place. This, this is what we would call lost people or unbelievers or whatever language you want to use. Paul's just saying that's the, nat- that's the natural state of people. Amen? You, you, are you with me? He says over here, there are spiritual people. And, he's, and when Paul says this, he doesn't just mean people who are kind of like, you know, uh, spiritual in a, in a um, like a, well, I'm into horoscopes. He means he's talking specifically about people who are following Jesus in a deep way. And so um, he's saying people who have, who have kind of had the scales come off their eyes, they've been born of the Spirit. And now that the Spirit resides in them, they're actually able to understand things in a deep way that they weren't ever able to understand before. I can tell you this is exactly the, the story of Jeff's life. Jeff unable to understand things that were deeper. And even, you know, Christianity was just a crutch for weak people. It would have been my perspective as a, as a teenager. You know, why would I put my trust in Jesus? I mean, I believe all the stuff about him, but I'm not going to trust him. I'm trusting me. And so coming over here to a place of saying, I have to die completely to self and follow him and, and radically obey him, no matter how simple or how hard the, you know, it might be for me. Uh, the, two very different things. And so that's the, the, the world in two parts. But into this dynamic of natural versus spiritual, Paul introduces a third type of person. And it's the third type of person that's very convicting. He says it's not just natural and spiritual, but over here in the spiritual man, there, are, there is this category called a carnal man or a fleshly man or a worldly man, a worldly person. And the basic idea of this person is this is somebody who is, there's debate about this among some people who study this passage, but I don't think there's any way you can make an argument that he's saying that people who are carnal aren't Christians. He's, he's referring to them as family, using family language, brothers, sisters. And he says... Basically, these are people who have come to accept Jesus. They made a decision. They got, they got baptized. You know, they did all the sorts of external things that, you, that we mark Christianity with. But then they, they got stuck. They, they never really moved from there. They, they got saved but stuck. And so, you know, essentially what he's pointing to in the early part of 1 Corinthians 3, leading up to this idea of, of growth is that there are these, there's this category of people who are immature or stunted. Have you ever seen this in life? Somebody who is, I mean, I'm talking literally and physically, somebody who's just stopped growing. And it's like, whoa, you know, we see this sometimes where people need help. Maybe it's hormone therapy or things like that. And you're like, man, you, or, and then have you ever seen somebody who all of a sudden shoots up over the course of like a summer? You know, Paul is saying that, 
you guys haven't shot up. You know, you're, you, something happened where you got stunted. And he says, I'm going to point out a couple of the signs, you know, of this stunted growth, and then we're going to deal with it. And so let me just point those out to you as he says them. First off, he kind of says, well, he doesn't kind of, he says explicitly that this birth of yours into the kingdom was highly and deeply experiential where you saw your life change in a moment from persecuting Christians in Paul's case to being a lover of Jesus. And he said, you know, it's a highly emotional, it's highly experienced. And he says that that experience, feeling-based orientation of your relationship with God is a good thing, particularly at the beginning where you're lit on fire and you're like, man, it's all, I cry every time that they sing the songs. And he, he says, but you're supposed to mature to this deep place of trust in God, like I was talking about earlier in praying, where there's this wonderful balance between the subjective truth of my feelings and the objective truth of God is who he says that he is, that goes beyond our feelings. What Paul's basically getting at is imagine, you know, how many of you, when you had, you don't have to raise your hands, I'll just kind of confess it for myself. When my kids were little and I spoke to them when they were little, all I really wanted when they were really, really little was for them to say, Dada. Or dad, you know, you're like, at some point you're going to realize I'm part of your world. You know, I'm not the mom. I don't, I, I could bring them to Carol and Carol would breastfeed them. And I just had basically a back and forth job. And I'm like, at some point you're going to realize I'm here. And I would like, say dada, say dada. And they'd be in their crib and I would talk to them. And the day they'd look up at me and go, dada. And I, I, my face would light up and their face would light up. And I would long, I'd let me go get them in the morning. And I would talk to them in the crib in the morning. And, you know, and I had this kind of like, you know, dada, I'm dada. You know, looking, and they, they go, yeah, da-da. And, you, and, you, and it's a wonderful experience. But imagine talking to a 40-year-old man like he's still in the crib. And you're, you're looking at this 40-year-old man, you're going, da-da, da-da. And, he's, and the 40-year-old man's going, da-da. And, and this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm coming back to you and recognizing the fact that I should be able to speak to you at least on adolescent terms. You should have at least moved on from milk to, to food but you're still, you're, you're not there yet. He said, this is a sign of your immaturity. And, and by the way, just for what it's worth, this is, a, this is bonus material. Milk versus solid food does not mean a difference in types of truth, but in the degree. So even though he's saying milk to solid food, it doesn't mean like that when you get mature, there's secret knowledge you're going to get that you don't have when you're immature. It doesn't mean, so in other words, anything and everything I ever learned in seminary can be taught to a child. You just have to use different words. There's no special secret knowledge. That's called Gnosticism, and it's heresy. And so run from people who tell you they have a secret special revelation that you can only get from them, okay? Everything that God wants to share with you in immaturity he can, or in maturity, he can share with you in immaturity. It's just in a different way. And so we have to grow up, and Paul's saying that, that, you know, that you should be eating solid food and you're still drinking milk. This is a sign of immaturity or stunted growth. He says another sign of, of your stunted growth is he said what exists amongst you is the kind of fighting, infighting, envy and strife and jealousy and insecurity that exists within the world. It doesn't look any different than it looks in the world. He says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, of the world, and behaving only like people behave in a human way? You know, in the, in the church, you know, of the day, we're going to, you can see when he says, some of you say I follow Paul, some I follow Apollos. He basically is talking about um, 
this is, a, is a, something that is a sign of worldliness that we see day in, day out on kickball teams and in corporate America and even in families, but it doesn't have a place really in the church. And, I, you know, I can just tell you as an insight from ministry, I've seen this happen. I remember a very early day in the immaturity of my ministry, I'm talking, I was ministering alongside of a guy that I would say jokingly, you don't have to worry about our, our maturity as leaders. Together, we have combined ministry experience of almost 50 years. He had like 49 and a half, and I had like six months. And, and this guy comes up to me not long after I've gotten there and, and kind of sort of pins me against a wall and just says, look, we're going to get rid of Mike. We don't like him, but we like you. So you stay out of it, and, and, um, and, and you'll be okay, and we'll run him out of here. We actually like you, though. You'll be, you'll be fine. This is what he said to me. This is in a sanctuary after a worship service. What do you say to that? Well, I'll tell you what I said. I said, hey, I love you, and I'm flattered you'd say that, but I want you to know this, that Mike's office is right over there, like through those doors around over there, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and end this conversation. I'm going to close my eyes and count to 30. And when I open my eyes, I'm going to assume the fact that you've walked ahead of me to Mike's office to talk to Mike. If you haven't, I'm going to walk to Mike's office and tell him about this conversation because you can't choose to follow Jeff or follow Mike. That's, a, that's called like a personality cult. You follow Jesus, and this isn't healthy. This is evil, you know, what you've just, what you've just said. And so, but this is exactly what Paul is seeing as a sign of, of, of immaturity, that there is something that has to be rooted out, and Paul deals with it very, very explicitly in this passage with the use of metaphors, but I'm going to get at that in just a second. He basically says, you got to grow up. And growth. Now, I wish I had more time to kind of unpack all what this means, but basically for a church, this is what it means. I'll bottom line it for us. It means for us, for Maranatha Church of Jacksonville, that we need to establish a culture that's come as you are. People, anybody, anywhere who wants to come into this church can come exactly as they are. We don't meet them out in the parking lot and say, you know, we're going to, we don't have like a metal detector, metaphorically speaking, you know, where they pass through. They can believe, they can be far from God, they can hate God, they can love God, they can be all over the map, that's fine. That's a come-as-you-are culture. We need to have a come-as-you-are culture, but we have to have also a don't-stay-the-way-you-are culture. Right? We have to say... You know, it's, God, it's our job to catch the fish. It's God's job to clean them up. And, and so we have to establish not just to come as you are culture, but a culture of growth. And Paul uses several metaphors in this passage related to growth. He uses childhood development, milk to solid food, babies to children. He uses this farm imagery or an agricultural imagery, which is where I'm going to really focus. He also at the very end sneaks in about a building. You're God's building, and then he unpacks that in the, past, in the verses that follow in 1 Corinthians 3. But let me just unpack a bit what it means, because he's speaking to a church, what I think Paul means when he says, you know, the church is called by God to grow. Can I do that? I won't take long on any one of these points, but there's just a few things. So we can at least build consensus around that. What do you think most people think of when you hear growing church? Numbers. Yeah, it's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the natural thing that people you know, think about or turn to. When, when, uh, when somebody says, hey, is your church growing? The first thing we think of is numerical growth. Yes and amen to that. I believe that the church should grow. Living things do grow numerically. They reproduce, so forth and so far, so forth and so on. Souls matter. Numbers do matter. 
But just adding people into a church is not growing. It's getting fat. If people, if we, if I see this all the time where churches have, we went through a season like this where we exploded numerically, but we got fat. We weren't really lean in terms of, you know, teaching people to be healthy and to grow up in God. And, and we, we were beginning to foster basically a consumer mentality of you come here and we'll feed you spiritual junk food and you just keep you kind of comfortable. That's not called growth. That's called something else. And so numerical growth, yes and amen, but it has to be more. I say you have to add to that catalytic growth. Now, what do I mean by catalytic growth? I mean something like this, like a 30-something-year-old violence-prone man with a criminal record becomes obviously transformed in the, and it goes from here, natural man to here, spiritual man. And, you, and everybody goes, whoa, if God can do that, then he can move in my life. I, I'm thinking of a 40-something-year-old woman who once had a, quote, reputation. Like the woman at the well with Jesus becomes this astonishingly caring caring Christian who goes into her community and says, I just met a man who told me everything I've ever done, but he loved me still. When we see that kind of transformation happen amongst adult, you know, believers, or unbelievers becoming believers, something happens in every society. Apparently, this is true. There is an establishment population, people who are part of kind of the inn, and there's a fringe population whom, whom, the, whom the establishment people always view them as impossible or hopeless. In every society, in Jesus' day, insiders and outsiders, and Jesus was continually looking to the fringe and doing miracles amongst the fringe and calling them in. And when people would see the fringe called back into the establishment, they'd go, whoa, something amazing's happening here. A dead boy was given back to his mother. I'm going to follow this guy. And so... That's what I mean by catalytic growth. Catalytic Christian movements begin when some of the hopeless people in our community are reached and some of those people experience transparent, you know, uh, 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 life change or uh, things we can see. So, and that kind of transformation catalyzes a growth, an openness where all of us begin to get spurred on, including the people who've been in the church their whole life and faith begins to spread contagiously. It catalyzes something. Are you with me? So that's there. But also biological growth. Here's what I mean by that. Children of Christians growing up to be Christians. This is a dying concept. The church is failing because this is the first generation that is growing into maturity now that the majority, I'm talking about kids born into Christian homes, the majority will not go to church. The majority of kids who are being raised now and going into adulthood are going to not go to church. The majority. And so we, we can't, we have to keep our kids we have to instruct our kids and see the spiritual transformation where our kids are taught that God doesn't have grandchildren. They can't love him through their parents. They have to come to a point of, of, of decision, the valley of decision for their own lives and say, I will follow you, Jesus. Come hell or high water, you're mine. Not my mom's and dad's. So biological growth, community growth, caring and reaching into our community when and where it counts, going and picking up garbage in Springfield, going to, you know, uh, to Enterprise Learning Academy, going and knocking on doors, finding community needs where they are, meeting people, you know, the needs of the community is in a way that, that Jesus would call going to the fringes and calling them into the inside. Global, global growth as well, going to the ends of the earth. And I would also put in that 
reaching broken people. Just reaching broken people. People inside or outside of the church and, and, and restoring them. But the, the final aspect of growth is the one where the rubber meets the road, and that's called discipleship. That we can't do all of those things, and then 20 years later, we're still going dada? We can't still be drinking spiritual milk 20 years later. We, we are called by God to be more than that. And so how does that happen? And who's responsible for making that happen? Well, look at verses 6 and 7 of 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says about himself, I planted. Get the metaphor now? I mean, see where he is? He's on a farm. He's in a field. I planted. Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. Say that with me. God gave the growth. Say it like you mean it. God. (laughs) So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Let me say that differently. The one who plants and the one who waters are nothing. They're nothing. The, The pastor, the preacher, Pastor Jeff, Brian, Kevin, leaders, whatever, he, this, is, this is what Paul is saying, and this is objective truth, are nothing. But only God who gives the growth. So let me just stop right there and ask you this question. You have to really think about this. Do you really believe the words of Scripture that I just read? Do you really believe it? Do you really believe that God alone makes people grow? This is a very, very important and deep question. Do you really believe that it's God's desire and God's responsibility to grow you up from immaturity to maturity? Do you really believe that? That the one who waters and the one who plants are nothing. It's only God who gives this growth. It's worth selling a lot of your material and investing in, you know, a a private hermitage to go and sit and contemplate that. God, do I really trust that this scripture that Jeff just read is true? God alone makes people grow. No amount of teaching, no amount of Bible study, prayer, seminary classes, no amount of spiritual discipline can change you. Only God can change you. Surely, surely he uses people like us in the church community in the process of change as Paul you know, says and indicates in here. But it's God alone that changes people and only changes them when they are willing. It requires something from you. And if this is true, and it is, what implications does that have on the way you approach spiritual growth for yourself? This is about growth. And so what implications does that have? It's massive for me. I can tell you one of the reasons why. It's massive for me as a pastor because I often feel the frustration of trying to make people change. You know, I have experience in this. I have lot, tried lots of different paths and plans, curriculums designed to grow people toward Christian maturity. But very few of them emphasize the really radical idea that we can't change ourselves, at least not the way God intends. We can make certain changes. We can go to through 12-step and really helpful, positive things 
that will help to bring change about in our life. But the deep sort of stuff that God's after, only God himself can rot in our lives. Jesus made that really simple point on his very last night on earth when he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce a lot of fruit. But apart from me, you can do nada. That's for you, Josue. Nothing. Zip. And the message that we somehow subtly convey to you week after week, we don't mean to do it, but we do, is that this, you were made right with God by grace. That's a good message, right? God came in with grace and filled the void, gave you more than you deserved, and covered the gap for you so that you can go to heaven one day. But for now, it's up to you to grow to an acceptable, I'm using air quotes, Christian standard. Often, that standard has more to do with outward conformity than with inward spiritual growth. So what happens in the church is people, Christians come into the church, usually masking what's really going on on the inside for fear of being found out, and they conform to the externals, so they're much more likely to be raw and real at the bar than they are at the church. So as long as you don't do, as long as you don't do certain outward things like read, like, like smoking or getting drunk or having sex outside of marriage or cussing, then you pass the test. And as long as you do do certain outward things like reading the Bible, attending church, and praying all the time, you're acceptable. This is the story of the prodigal sons. And even if on the inside you're still controlled by greed, jealousy, insecurity, impatience, fear, anxiety, even if you're emotionally shut down and distant or controlling or secretly addicted to lust or you're addicted to your material possessions, just don't let it show and you'll still be viewed as an acceptable Christian. And Paul is calling this out as being carnal. Paul's repeated message, in fact, throughout all of his letters, is that only God can cause the growth. Apparently, this is a really common trap that's existed in churches time immemorial, and we, we fall into these traps. We start with grace, but we backpedal into trying to make ourselves acceptable by our own efforts. We start with going, there's nothing I can do, God, save me. And then we get saved, and then we begin to try to work it out on our own. The scriptures make it really, really, really clear. People don't grow spiritually that way. They just conform outwardly and stay stuck inwardly. And so if you find yourself sometimes in a position of going, you know, I know Jesus is real and I know that I want to follow him, but I just feel I can't get unstuck, then that may be the position you're in. But if we can, by the grace of God, create the right culture, God then will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so... Let me break it down for you. Um, I won't take long. What's our part? Paul says it this way. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This is incredibly liberating, especially for people in ministry. (laughs) I don't know if you kind of get that. It's a little bit of a joke. But it really is honestly incredibly liberating to know that, this, that it's not my job at the end of the day to make you grow. I, it's, it's like looking at the crib and going, grow. And so Jeff and Brian and Kevin and church elders and church staff and leaders, he's, you know, Paul's making clear we are nothing. In fact, one of the most liberating verses for pastors is first, of all is 1 Corinthians 3.8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will be, receive his wages according to his labor. You want to know why that's liberating? Because I'm not paid on commission. 
I don't have to produce anything in you to be worthy of my wages. I simply have to be faithful to do my part. We are only instruments that God uses to help develop faith in people. So it says Paul is going to get his reward because he planted. And Apollos is going to get his award, reward for watering. And, and that's the beautiful thing about serving the Lord. He rewards us for the work that we do, not for the results of the work that we do, because the results don't belong to us. They belong to him. So I'm on a salary. I'm not commissioned at all. I'm not paid with a commission. I'm only salaried by the Lord to teach his word and whatever comes of it is his and it's for his glory. I can't produce fruit in your life. All I can do is teach you the word of God. I can be faithful to it or I can water it. And maybe someone else has planted the seed, but here we are watering, cultivating, in some cases planting. Great, that's what we do. But it's the work of God that really counts what he's doing. It's God who brings life to you. It's God who resurrects from the dead. It's God who gives life to his word. And, it's, and so I receive I just receive a reward for doing what I've done, what I've been assigned to do, and I receive that reward whether or not anything comes of it. Because if I've been faithful to do what God called me to do, then that's all that counts. And let me tell you why that really matters, why that's beautiful. Last weekend when we were here doing Take the City, Andrew Chalmers taught on this a bit, and I think it's one of the most beautiful, insightful, liberating things you can receive as a Christian. God didn't call you to go out and lead everybody to Jesus. He called you to witness for him. And you're rewarded for your obedience to that advocacy for Jesus, not on the results. You don't get a better reward because you led 100 people to Jesus. And this guy led zero. You get a reward because you've been, you've been faithful to witness to any time, any place, anyone you can, who God is to you, who Jesus is to you. And if, God is, if Jesus is in your life and he's, he's your hope, then you should be able to witness to anybody the hope that you have within you when the opportunity arises. That's the thing that we need to really realize, that God rewards us for the work that he's called us to do, not for the results of that work. Sometimes we feel those discouragement because, you know, I witnessed to so many people and none ever believe, you know, I haven't really ever led anybody to Jesus and I've talked to so many people. Well, maybe that isn't you. That's, you know, times I felt that. Well, it doesn't matter as far as your reward is concerned. God only asked you to, to witness, to talk, to be, a, to be an advocate for him. He didn't give you, he doesn't pay you on commission to argue with people into faith. He doesn't, he doesn't pay you to go out and get into disputes with people over the inerrancy of the Bible or, or whatever. I find it pathetic that so we, we sometimes place ourselves in the position of being God's lawyers and defending the word of God. God didn't call me to defend his word. He called me to use his word, to declare his word. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He'll, he'll, he'll do what he wants. Sorry, bit of a tangent. So I told you about immaturity. Let me tell you quickly what maturity looks like, and then I'll close. You good for that? You want to hear something about maturity? <laughs> Look, these are going to seem trite, but I'm telling you, these, this is how simple it is. Maturity looks like basically these, these four things, loving God, loving people, building character, and building the church. I think that's, that, that's a good, and let me just give you a synopsis. Loving God, honestly, as a guy who's been doing this a long while, I don't really think most people consider loving God a net gain in life. I think when you say to people, you know, you know, if you just learn to love God more, you're, you're going to really have a better life. I think people are like, eh, I don't know about that. They either think he's a taskmaster, <laughs> you know, like uh, who God is to you is who God is through you kind of thing. Like he's a taskmaster, and if I give him more of me, he's going to make me do more stuff. Or I've watched people go, you know, like he's going to send me to Africa. Or like I don't really believe that. I mean, who, I'd rather get to know somebody else. And so, but if you ask people instead, how would you like to experience so much confidence that you, that you almost never feel insecure in your life? 
how would you like to have moments of feeling so loved by God that you couldn't contain it? Or how would you like to know that God is a loving parent? He's a friend. He's an encourager. How, do, how would you like the peace of making decisions, knowing that your creator cares for you and guides you in decision-making? I mean, who doesn't want that? And understanding how God loves us. Um, Is, 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 is in internalizing that love, bringing it into the internal place by knowing him. And what it does is it catalyzes something in our love for him. He says it this way, we love because he first loved us. All right, I'll move on. Got more to say there, but got to go. Loving people. Everybody wants to be a more loving person, right? Anybody here say, you know, I don't. I do not want to be a more loving person. <laughs> I, I, I reject that, that claim. I want to be a less loving person. I want to be more hateful and conflict-oriented, and evil to the people around me. Everybody wants to be a more loving person, right? But how do you grow in your ability to not be an evil, hateful, uh, you know, conflict-oriented person? How do you grow in your ability to resolve conflict? How do you grow to celebrate differences in people that, 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 that make up the, this, this incredible mosaic of God's people? How do you make amends with people from the past? How do you grow in, in motivating, encouraging, speaking truth to lo- and love to people that builds them up? You know, people need to see what this love really looks if, if we want people to ever give their hearts to God, they've got to see what it looks like. And they've got to see what it looks like by us loving them in ways that are confounding or provocative. To, and since, since this, this thing called faith, this life in God, is ultimately relational to the core, then the, the, the real benchmark of maturity for us has to be based on the health of our relationships. Paul says this. One of the reasons I know you're not mature is, is that your relationships are full of envy and strife when you can begin to love the people around you in spite of the fact that they're still struggling, that's a sign of maturity. When you can assume the best about people and not assume evil intentions about people when something happens to you, that's a sign of security in you. It's insecure when anytime something happens, you go, well, that person probably was out to get me. And Paul is saying that you can grow up. He, he, John said it this way, if anyone says I love God yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For anyone who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. All right, enough there. Third, building character. You've got to grow. This is what, we're, what Paul's saying. These character traits, you've got to get out of the crib. The fruit of, the God, the fruit of God spirit has to grow. Here's the truth about this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all things that you're longing for are actually what God will produce in you if you yield yourself to him. If you say, God, I'm available to you, that his deep desire is to, is to produce these things in you, and the yield of the harvest will be the fruit of his spirit. You can't, he doesn't give you the fruit as gifts. He gives you the fruit as a result of, of, of producing his life in you. In other words, following Jesus and allowing him to have access to you and growing you, you know, up is, is, is actually where you get the most out of life, not from pleasure, possession, and people, the sorts of things that can never actually satisfy. They're broken cisterns. And to, to, to love God means you trust his spirit to produce those things in you. And finally, maturity, you know, Paul would say that a walk with Jesus means a growing role in building, building what God's building. And each and every one of us has been given resources, unique gifts, abilities, finances, possessions, time, whatever it may be, to use under the direction of God to see his church built in the world by uniting us together to love and serve one another. And everybody has a unique role to play in that, in God's plan to see the world ultimately redeemed. But never as a lone ranger. 
Rather, what we're called to do is to join together with brothers and sisters as part of this union and this unified effort with others to literally represent Jesus to the world like one body. And it's only together that we can demonstrate that. So let me just finish. Brian, I'm done. I'm not really, but I, 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 I am. I don't really have a great conclusion, but the thing that stirs my heart about the conclusion is this. I, it's so frustrating to me, like I said, that I don't really have four action plans. I don't like meetings when you get to the end of the meeting and you go, well, what are we going to do? And there's no action to be taken. You're like, well, what did we meet about? You know, I mean, it's, it's philosophizing. Eventually, you've got to do something. Well, I don't actually know because I can't say to you that God causes the growth and then tell you what you've got to do. Um, but I do know this. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to, to Mark chapter 4. I'm just going to read this because Mark does it so succinctly. Here's the truth of, of, of what has to happen. It's all about soil. You've got to establish a culture of good soil for there to be good growth. I know this. I know that the seed, God's desire, God's spirit, God's word is good seed. And I know that if he's going to produce fruit, then that good seed has to be planted in good soil. I pray this ahead of every message I preach. And so... Carol, my wife, loves to work in the dirt. She's like, she loves to garden. She's a child of farmers, and she, I am too, but I didn't get it. She does. She gets it. She knows how to work with soil and make bad soil good soil. And there's always hope. Do you know that good farmers actually even use garbage, refuse, manure, to turn that into something that's, that's good soil? That's, there's a, there's a selah. Nothing is wasted. But this is what, this is how Mark says. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large, he got into a boat and sat in on the lake. While all the people were sitting along the shore at the water's edge, and he taught them in parables. Like babies becoming, you know, adults in fields and buildings. And this is the parable. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed, to scatter seed. And as, as, as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when this, the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so they didn't bear grain. But still... Other seed fell on good soil, and it came up where the good soil was and grew and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, even 100 times. Then Jesus said, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Farmers work on the soil. That's what they do. Farmers, you know, I'm a farmer. This is the, the, Brian's a farmer. This is the responsibility God's given us. You know, Pastor Kevin, all, we're, we, 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 we're, it says we're God's workers. He owns the farm. We don't own it. We're working for him. We're paid our wages to do our job. Brian waters. I fertilize. Kevin weeds. What, you know, other leaders, this is what we do. We're working you know, on this field with God. And our job is to do our best, as best as we can under God's provision to see the soil be made healthy. You can see that he's saying that there's, look, there's four different types. There's soil. There's no real soil to work with. There's, it's, a, it's just a path, like a road. There's no soil there. When seed falls there, it can't grow because there's no soil. Is that you? And he also says that there's a rocky place with shallow soil. He says that there's some soil there, but it's so shallow that the seed can hardly go in. And when it comes up, it gets, you know, it gets eaten quickly because it can't go deep. Is that you? He says there's soil that's got good, 
you know, it's deep enough, but there's all kinds of weeds and thorns. And when the, the, the plant comes up, the fruit comes up, the weeds choke out the growth. Is that you? And then he finally says there's good soil. And the good soil, he says, can produce 30, 60, 100 fold. It can do way more than you would ever imagine it can do. You can be radically obedient to a simple little word from the Holy Spirit and plant seed somewhere and like a kid named Khalil, may, you may never see him again and the Lord might produce 30, 60, 100 fold. What if? What if? So my question is to close is this. What kind of soil are you? Maybe you're not good soil. I've said this to people in discipleship settings. I, look, maybe you're just not good soil. You're not growing. And, and I've said it harshly sometimes to wake people up. Look, I know it's good seed. I have limited time. If you're not good soil, I, I, we can't keep doing this. According to this parable, there's a three out of four chance you're not good soil. But there's hope. Hunger, desire, willingness, surrender. Just simply saying, God, I don't know if I'm pavement or rocky with shallow soil or thorny, but I want to be good soil. I want your seed to be planted in good soil, and I want to grow in you. I want to grow up. That's enough. That is enough of prayer to activate God's desire to do in you what you need done. It requires radical hunger, willingness, and desire, and surrender, and obedience. And so let he or she who has ears hear. If you can stand, stand with me. Jesus, I don't like messages where I don't get to tie it up in a nice bow. But I trust that you you do. You did this with your parables all the time. And I trust you have something to say that's deeper than anything I could say. But I pray especially for my brothers and sisters out there right now that there would be a real serious reckoning that they might ask themselves, do I really believe the scripture that God causes the growth? And they might also ask themselves, what kind of soil am I? Because if all of it takes is God's, if God desires to do it, then he's already desiring that. And if I'm not growing, why? If I'm a 40-year-old spiritual, if, I'm a, if I've been in the Lord for 40 years, I'm still in the crib drinking milk. Why? And so, Lord, we pray that you would come and you would help us, you would stir us up, that we might attenuate the soil, that we might make it healthy, that we might do our part to create an environment, a culture of growth, that we might say, come as you are, does not matter who you are, what you believe, where you're from, what you have, what you don't have, come as you are. But also a culture, don't stay as you are. We pray that you would produce deep-rooted spiritual believers in Jesus' name. You can come forward if you want.